So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too, perhaps, may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. Hello and welcome to another episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats, brought to you by Man Marking. I'm Dan Reed, and on these episodes, we take a look back at an example of mental ill health in football from yesteryear. Today we'll be taking a look back at the life of Alan Davis, the former Manchester United and Swansea City winger, who was born in 1961 and sadly took his own life at the age of 30 in 1992. Alderson tries it first time, and in fact, Norman Whiteside couldn't get out of the way. But in their enthusiasm, United leaving themselves open on the counter-attack. And Boniak for Rossi. And it's deflected in. Slung in again by Orbiston. And it reached right side. And Davis surely. 1-1. Alan Davis. It's always raining and it's always muddy on the pitch and it's always inclement weather and He's got the ball and he had fairly long hair. Just running with the ball, attacking down the right-hand side or the left, but predominantly through the right-hand side and creating chances. And, and and he was an exciting player. And you just thought this guy should be playing somewhere else for somebody else. He was that good. A lovely, normal, everyday bloke. I think that's the, 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 the phrase she used. And, and, you know, he just sounded completely normal. No airs and graces, no sort of superstar ego or anything like that and you know he'd obviously had this this period where he'd gone from as I said from unknown at Manchester United to suddenly playing the FA Cup final get called up to the Wales squad and by all accounts it didn't change him one bit he was just this you know lovely quiet lad and and teammates I spoke to Scott McGarvey who'd been with him at Manchester United and Joe Allen they they said you know he was a great guy in the dressing room quiet but you know, incredibly funny, sort of quips, one-liners. Orbiston again, low in for Davis, who've got a good position. Robson! That's the goal that Manchester United wanted from their captain. Oh, McQueen was doing some climbing there, surely. This is Davis. Turned it in for Whiteside! But back then there were very little outlets for players, I would imagine, or or even in any environment for somebody, especially male, to actually say, listen, I'm in trouble, I've got a problem, uh, and I need help. Because it's quite, you know, it's well documented that, that nobody knew of Alan's problems, nobody knew the way he was feeling. I mean, he must have been in the worst place that any man could find himself in, because it's... He must have been in a seriously dark place. I was joined to tell Alan's story by a couple of guests. The first was journalist and author Oliver Kay. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Oliver Kay. I'm a football writer for The Athletic, uh, previously at The Times. And uh, you, you've written quite a few pieces which have been about mental health and football. And you you obviously recently wrote the, the book about Adrian Doherty as well. Um, is, is sort of mental health and particularly mental health and football a sort of particular interest of yours uh it's it's become so i think i mean it's um i feel i find that the stories of of you know various people you know incredibly sad but also important um in some cases where they've managed to sort of turn things around i think those stories are very uplifting and important from that point of view and i think it's i mean you know you you read so many interviews with with footballers in in the papers and see so many footballers on the TV and a lot of them you know a lot of them it's they're telling very very similar stories you know fairly one-dimensional stories and I, 
of of their careers to date and how everything's going well and you know i i find the mo the more interesting interviews to do and the more interesting stories to tell are those where you know it doesn't need to have been adversity and and mental health and darkness but it's a, the 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 stories where you know somebody's done something a little bit different in their life and and you know those the those are the stories i i seek out really and I've, I, as you say, I, you know, I've, I've often done pieces pieces on that. I mean, I think that Matt Janssen, when he was at Blackburn, I, I did a couple of pieces with him about about that. And it was, I think, though, at that time, I think that that sort of issue of somebody struggling, clearly struggling, even though I don't think anybody knew the extent of it at the time. I think a lot of that sort of went over people's head at the time. Um, but um, I guess the last. Decade, really. I mean, the the, the Robert Enker, you know, the story of his death, which is utterly tragic, and and the the wonderful book that Ronnie Reng um, wrote about that, A Life Too Short, the death of Gary Speed. I think it's brought things more into the openness. But I I also feel, I mean, I, I, as we speak, it's it's only a few days after um, Jeremy Whiston, a, a young. Manchester City Academy player, former Academy player, um, took his life and, and nobody really knows yet the, the reasons why. But I wanted to write about that as well, because I feel like. I feel like, we, you know, I feel like we need to have more of a sort of conversation about mental health in general, but about mental health in, in football, because I think there's still an assumption that if you're earning a certain amount of money or if you've got a certain amount of adulation or fame or or popularity that you are immune to those things and, and it's become very apparent that you know mental health touches um could touch anybody in 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 any walk of life and you know probably all most of us probably know know people who are who have struggled with with one thing or another so perhaps to tell these stories um about footballers and about um famous people i think probably it helps in a way to normalise that conversation. I was also joined by Keith Haynes. Keith runs Swansea Independence, which is a Swansea fan site. And he very generously recorded these answers from a studio in Cadiz in southwest Spain. So, yeah, Swansea Independent is a, um, is a website. It's quite a popular website on the internet, believe it or not. It's risen out of the flames of an old website called Planet Swans, which has gone its own way. We've retained quite a few thousand subscribers. We deal with mostly Swansea City matters and Welsh international football matters. But uh, we do shoot off now and again into other areas of football, although I've got to say they're not as popular as they are the stories that reflect the first team week in, week out. That's where uh, the bread and butter of our website is found. We say we do run stories every week um, or every day of every week, um, pre-match, post-match, lots of discussions. We have forums too, which can get a little bit feisty at times, so they have to be moderated by uh, our uh, <laughs> our chosen team of moderators And uh, because people do get a little bit upset if you lose one or two games or, or in fact, if you... Uh, don't like the player that they like but overall it's a uh, it's a happy forum and it's a happy website it's very successful it's part of the fans network which is run by a guy called Gavin Wilding uh, who's an Ipswich supporter so he knows all about proper football like we do and of course we are always reacting and reflecting on breaking news as it comes some of that breaking news of course never really makes it to uh, to a player actually joining or something happening but uh, we do enjoy breaking news on the website and uh, we do work very closely with other uh, journalists who uh, offer their services quite often which is quite good uh, you'll find us at uh, swanseaindependent.co.uk quite as simple as that um, there's loads of history on there thousands and thousands of uh, of uh, stories and uh, from the old sides and of course this one and I think at the moment we're getting around about 800 to 900,000 hits a month. We're trying to improve that greatly, and it's happening slowly. 
Alan Davis was born in Manchester in 1961. He was discovered by Manchester United in 1976 and he would be 16 years old when he signed as a trainee in July of 1978. And just five months later, he put pen to paper on his first professional contract. Now, when doing some research for this episode, I read a piece that Ali Kay wrote about Alan Davis where he went to interview his family. So that was my first portacle, asking Ollie why Alan Davis, why that piece, and what was it like to meet his family? When you wrote your piece about Alan Davis, you you spoke to um, his family, uh, including his daughters and his, his 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 wife as well. How did all that come about? What was your sort of motivation for for writing that piece and then getting in contact with his family? Well, it was it was a piece that I'd had in mind to do for for years, really, um, because I mean, I, you know, I, I was well aware that you know he a former FA Cup winner with Manchester United, um, and he had sort of taken his life nine years later, and and there'd been so little coverage of it, even at the time. You know, it probably made. Um, headlines at the time. I can, I can remember. I can remember reading it on CFAX at the time, um, 1992. Yeah, um, and being just shocked and like, oh my, that's just horrendous. And then I kind of almost heard nothing more about it. And then I remember when Manchester United played Juventus in the Champions League, not in '99, but in 2003. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I, I would try and do something about about Alan Davis because he'd scored a, a famous goal against Juventus um, in 1984, I think. And I thought that was a, a useful sort of peg for that piece. And I didn't manage to sort of get everything arranged to, to try and speak to all the right, right people. I, I just kind of forgot about it until, for a few years until I heard his, his name again. And I, I always wanted to do that piece and try to just tell the story because I think a lot of people just didn't didn't know the story and, and didn't know what happened but also to find out about it from, from my own curiosity because it just seemed extraordinary that he died and, and, and had just sort of almost been forgotten within football you know there was very little on the internet about him and um, I think I always thought in my mind it needed to be done around Manchester United playing Swansea which is just a really kind of silly journalistic way of looking at it but it's like oh you need a peg for, for for that kind of story when in fact the story you know it's a really important story and and uh, poignant story in its own right it shouldn't have needed for Manchester United to be playing Swansea for the story to have felt relevant to me so um but I Anyway, Man United would be playing Swansea every season and, and I would think oh I need to get it done for them and I never did. I, I, I until sort of 2016. I looked. At, it was literally the first fixture I looked for, and I thought, "Am I going to have time to approach his family, approach former teammates, and really kind of build a proper picture of of what happened and the type of guy he was, and 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 the the um, you know the, the the importance of that story really? Because I don't think it's a story you could do sort of half-heartedly or, or you know you, you, I, I spent so long on that story um, um, and yeah it was it was one thing which I you know I felt that if I was going to do it I needed to do it really properly and you, you, you we spoke just before we started recording about um, about the, the experience that you had when you went and went and spoke to his family and they were kind of talking you through um, obviously their, their memories of him and, and there was you know pieces of memorabilia about and stuff could you just kind of paint a little bit of a picture of, of what that experience was like it was i mean it was terribly sad obviously but it was it was love it was a lovely experience it was i remember it was a thursday evening uh, um in um i can't, I can't remember it was, i can't remember precisely what time of year it was but it was very it was very cold and i drove, drove over to manchester and it was um well, near Oldham where they lived and you know they invited me in and you know they, they just had the you know a lot of his um, memorabilia out on the on a table a load of newspaper cuttings um, you know, an SO FA Cup coin collection 
which he, he had, you know, from when he was a kid, you know, football mad kid. Um, and then FA Cup medal, with his medal from a few years later, Wales caps and articles, you know, newspaper clippings, just talking about this sort of whirlwind month he had when he, when he suddenly went from being a complete unknown on the very, very distant fringes of the Manchester United team to playing in the cup final, playing really well, getting his call up to the Wales squad. And, and it was emotional reading all that, but it was more emotional, I think, listening to his wife's, his widow's memories and um, listening to his daughters um, talk about him. I mean, the, the younger daughter, um, Sophie, was born six weeks after he died. The older daughter, um, Katie, had only really the vaguest recollections of him. And she mentioned something about, I remember, I remember him taking us to a llama farm you know that that was you know that was sort of one of her very few memories of him because I think she'd been four when he when he died and it was just it was very touching really listening to them um, talk about things and and listening as well to his 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 widow um, Deborah explaining things to. Um, the girls. I mean, obviously, they'd, they'd had many conversations about him over, over the years, and it wasn't a taboo subject in, the, in their family. But I was probably asking, you know, different questions, more sort of football-based questions than than they would have asked, and and getting different answers. And, and you know, they were saying, "Oh God, I, I never knew. I never knew he did that. Oh, why do?" You? And it was it was lovely, and they were you know such lovely people, and and they'd been very unsure when I first approached them, but they talked about it and I sort of said, look, you know, I'll, I'll tell the story sensitively and sympathetically and I just want to, um, you know, maybe maybe allow me to come over and um, we can talk and if, and if you're, if at the end of it, you don't want me to do the article, then, you know, I won't. But, so they, they ended up talking um, very openly really and, and I think they found it quite cathartic in, in a way and and they they really welcomed the the article so it's it was it was although it's a very dark story a very sad you know bleak upsetting story it was there was some warmth i think to to come from the, the way they spoke about him the line that sticks in my mind about uh from his from deborah was you know he said something like i was just a, a a lovely, normal, everyday bloke. I think that was the the, the, the phrase she used. And, and, you know, he just sounded completely normal. No airs and graces, no sort of superstar ego or anything like that. And, you know, he'd obviously had this this period where he'd gone from, as I said, from unknown at Manchester United to suddenly playing the FA Cup final, getting called up to the Wales squad. And by all accounts, it didn't change him one bit. He was just... This you know lovely quiet lad and and uh, different um, teammates. I spoke to Scott McGarvey who had been with him at Manchester United and Joe Allen uh, who had been not the uh, not the Liverpool and Swansea and Stoke Joe Allen but but Joe Allen with an O who was at um, uh, Newcastle with him and and he was you know they they, they said you know he was a you know, great guy in the dressing room quiet but you know incredibly funny. Sort of quips, one-liners, um, and just sort of you know that 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 kind of guy had lots of you know was everyone's mate. Had this you know had load, loads of nicknames. I remember one of them saying you know yeah the bandit, the gringo, uh, AD, you know whatever you know so many nicknames, and um, yeah he just seemed like. A perfectly normal guy who was playing um, football to a very high level. Alan Davis would have to wait until 1982 to make his first team debut for Manchester United. And he made that on the 1st of May 1982 in a 1-0 win against a Southampton team that included Kevin Keegan in front of 40,000 at Old Trafford. The winning goal being scored by Scotland forward Scott McGarvey. At that time, Man United were a very different club, a very different side to the club that we've known since and and probably the club that we 
that people would have known before that era, some of which we heard in the, the George Best episode that we did a couple of weeks ago. So I asked Ali Kay, what type of club were Man United like at the time? What were kind of Manchester United like as a club then compared to the kind of the the sort of monster that we, we know of today? Hmm. Well, I think by by 1980s standards, they were probably seen as a, a bit of a monster then. It's, you know, the size of the... The stadium, you know, even though it's nothing like now, it was. It was. You know, I remember growing up and being taken to Old Trafford for a game, and, and it was um, thinking, "Wow, that's this is this is far bigger than the other stadiums I've been to." You know, even you know, Goodison and Anfield and and places like that, and Main Road. It was it, Old Trafford just seemed bigger, and um, you know, there, there was this. Um, you know, it, it was. Obviously, they were in a, a dark period in terms of, you know, probably halfway through that period where they hadn't won the league for 26 years. But they were still, you know, a huge club and they had, you know, they, they bought Brian Robson for a British record transfer fee, one and a half million, which seemed like a, a big deal at the time. What, you know, one of my first memories as a football fan is actually them signing Brian Robson and, and you know, him signing on a on a on a, on a table on the pitch before a game, and it with I think a gold pen, and it, it was this sort of flash image around Manchester United. Ron Atkinson with his tan and his in his gold rings and <laughs> and his um, dodgy coats and stuff like that. It, he, he was um, yeah. United were weren't you know they, they were in Liverpool's shadow on the pitch at the time, um, but they were and you know. Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa's shadow as well, but 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 in terms of the um, but there was this you know sense that you know United were a huge club and were were to be taken seriously. They had these great players like you mentioned of Robson and Wilkins and um, you know Frank Stapleton, Norman Whiteside broke through and was a was a sort of superstar overnight. And yet you know they they were they were a cup team. They you know they were a fairly ordinary team in terms of league performance week in and week out. And they had, you know, less, you know, they had these four or five star players and they had, you know, a number of less glamorous players. And there was probably a bit of a disconnect between the two. And they were quite a dysfunctional team in that sense. But they but they they had this knack of coming together well in in, in, in the cup competitions. The following season, 1982-83, Alan would make just five appearances in the first team. However, Two of them were in the 1983 FA Cup final matches after Steve Koppel, who was his challenger to the right-wing position, picked up an injury. The first match was a 2-2 draw, and it was Allen's FA Cup debut in the final at Wembley in front of 99,000 fans. The replay, Manchester United won 4-0, with Davis setting up two goals, winning his first and only major honour. Again, low in for Davis, who've got a good position. Robson! That's the goal that Manchester United wanted from their captain. Oh, McQueen was doing some climbing there, surely. This is Davis. Turned it in for Whiteside! And you can throw the comics away now, because this fellow at just 18 has put the fiction writers out of business. Muren takes the kick. And the header by Robson finds Stapleton, McQueen made a touch, and it's been thrown in! Brian Robson gets his second, and Manchester United's third. Now, Arnold Muren hasn't taken a penalty before for either Ipswich or Manchester United. But he scores with his left foot, and makes it 4-0. So... Britain's most expensive footballer, the captain of England, scorer of two goals tonight, Brian Robson, goes up the Wembley steps to receive the first major honour of his career as a senior professional, followed by the other Manchester United players. And what a reception they're going to get. If you go onto YouTube, you can search for the 1983 FA Cup final highlights between Manchester United and Brighton. It gives you highlights of both games. And it gives you a bit of a flavour of what type of player Alan Davis was. But that was what I wanted to know next. 
what type of footballer was he? You know, he was a winger at Man United, a very well-renowned position, a, a type of position that the club kind of rests its its identity on. So I asked Ollie, had he ever seen him play? What type of footballer was Alan Davis? Well, I, I mean, I I'm trying to think whether whether I'd ever seen him play before the that 1983 FA Cup final. Probably not. I wouldn't, you know, he made a handful of appearances and, um, you know, that was a time when games on TV were, well, there weren't live games on TV until the FA Cup final. So, I, no, I, I wouldn't have seen him play until that, that FA Cup final. And he was, he was a, um, he was a, yeah, I mean, he was left-footed, but I, th- I think he played on the right wing in that Cup final. I'm just trying to think, but he was, but he, he, he stood out as someone who, you know, there, there was quite a lot of fuss about him with that cup final and the commentators talking about him because he was somebody who wasn't on loan and he had a really good game. I mean, I was, I was, I think, I think I'm right in saying I was eight years old. The, the day of the replay. Um, yes, I was. Um, and so, you know, I, I would like to think I have a better eye for a player <laughs> now, <laughs> now than I did did then, but it's but it's it's yeah he, he he I remember him playing well, being talked about playing well, setting up a you know two of the goals in the replay and and um yeah he, he was a you know, a good a good player. I mean not not a world beater in the way that Ryan Giggs was when 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 he broke into the team, but but you know a, a good a good winger who who had you know, clearly a good left foot and uh, um and and you know a, a real talent. Alan would make his Wales debut five days later versus Northern Ireland in the British Home Championships, with Wales winning 1-0 through a goal by Alan's namesake, Gordon Davis, which was actually their first win in Northern Ireland since 1965. The 1983-84 season was blighted by injury for Alan, and he made just four appearances. One of them, however, was in the Cup Winners' Cup semi-final versus Juventus, where Alan came off the bench and turned out to make a very memorable contribution. Alderston drives it first time, and in fact, Norman Whiteside couldn't get out of the way. But in their enthusiasm, United leaving themselves open on the counter-attack. And Boniek for Rossi. And it's deflected in. Slung in again by Alderston. And it'll reach Whiteside. And Davis Shirley. 1-1, Alan Davis. And the following pre-season, he, he got quite a bad injury, which, which kept him out for about six months or so. And then, as you referenced before, he made a pretty dramatic comeback against Juventus in the, the Cup Winners' Cup semi-final, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, um, that was um, you know, I mean, you could, you could think, looking at his, um, you know, that, I mean, had, had it not been for that, I mean, it, it would have been, you know, you'd been talking really about a guy who had an incredible couple of weeks in his career. Um, but the, the, the goal he scored against Juventus, you know, we, we just, he, he just, I think he came on as a sub in that game. And it was, you know, in those days, um, you know, people talk about great European nights at Anfield and Old Trafford and so on. And in those days, there were, there were a lot of small crowds for, for, for regular league matches, you know, sort of 30,000 odd, you know, for, for, for certain league games and lower for a lot of the cup games, including the, Euro, the early rounds of the European games, of, you know, they're playing sort of little known opposition, but but there'll be a game like that. And I've, I've watched the, I mean, I remember the game at the time, but I, I've watched the footage back of, of the Cup Winners Cup semi-final against Juventus. And it was a really big deal. Um, Playing um, playing against you know Juventus and a great Juventus team full of you know um, players who had won the World Cup with Italy a couple of years earlier and Michel Platini and players like that. Um, it was it was a really good team and and, and um, to beat you know it was clearly a great atmosphere, a great occasion, and and obviously he scored the goal that night, which um, I think had him down as a Man for the big occasion. I think that was one one that one thing that kind of came out in the in the, the, the newspaper, newspaper clippings that they had of him, and 
the sad thing is that he didn't really get to to be involved in another big occasion because you know injuries and one thing and another he was he was sold on to Newcastle and Newcastle were in a bit of a mess at the time and he didn't really sort of settle there and and then from there to Swansea and Bradford and Swansea again and it was a uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he didn't ever really recapture the um, the, the the stages and and the 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 form that he he had as a young man. Um, do you think that injury, Elliot, kind of held his career back? Was was that something that kind of plagued him, you know, over the next sort of five or six years? I, I would. Th- I mean, it must have. It must have really. Stopped him making that breakthrough at Manchester United. I mean, to, to have been involved in the FA Cup final and um, and, and and to have played well, and I think it was I think it was the, the preseason, um, you know, preseason a couple of months later, and he would have gone into that preseason still sort of walking on air, really, you know, after those, you know, I think he called it the month of a lifetime, um, and. To break your leg in, in pre-season when you probably feel like you've got the world at your feet. Um, I mean, that must have been devastating. I, I don't think he played for for a year or so after that, and um, he, he never really got back to the to the same level. I mean, that was a, a time when if you broke a leg, you, you know, you, you were instantly fearing for your career, and you, you you know people didn't generally come back. From broken legs very well. I mean, I remember Brian Robson did, but Brian Robson seemed to be superhuman and um, <laughs> seemed to come back from one thing after another. But generally, you know, a broken, a broken leg was really bad news for your career and for your, obviously for your immediate prospects, which I'm trying to think. I think Manchester United might have gone out then and like, I might be wrong, but suddenly Arthur Graham was playing on the wing for Manchester United. I think they might have signed him that Summer probably as a re- as a response to losing um, um, to losing Alan Davis to injury. So immediately the you know his his sort of long term you know obviously his, his short term prospects were, were, were clearly hit, but but also his long term prospects. And then of course you know they signed players like um, Jesper Olsen and Gordon Strachan, and you know the, very soon Alan Davis was a guy who. Had had this few these few games, but was you know way you know back way 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 down the pecking list um, pecking order, um, and you know with no real prospect of getting back into the team. It was which is, I mean, it's, it's happened to many young players um, over the course of football history. But but it's you know I think when you look at it in, in, in the context of what happened, I think you can probably sense that you know his career from that point on was never going to be quite what what he was um hoping for Alan would play his final game for Manchester United on the 5th of May 1984 in a 1-1 draw at Goodison Park against Everton Alan then moved on to Newcastle before moving on loan to Charlton and Carlisle eventually in 1987 he signed for Swansea City in Division 4 yeah, I, I do remember very clearly when uh, when Alan signed for the Swans because he came from you know a, a much bigger club in Newcastle United, and many of us had known Alan when he was uh, spending his uh, brief time at Manchester United. So for the Swans to sign a player of that quality was pretty big for us at the time. Um, pretty certain uh, Terry Yorath was at the club at the time. I would imagine that the connection between Terry Yorath and the Welsh side and uh, Alan being a Welsh international under 21 as well as full international would have uh, played a part. But yeah, when he when he signed for the Swans, you know, you, you just knew that you were going to get for the level that the Swans were at in the fourth division, you knew you were going to get a player of quality. And uh, that's how it turned out, most certainly. Alan's debut for Swansea would come in a 2-0 victory at Stockport County on the 15th of August 1987 in front of a crowd of 2,482. Now, for a player who'd starred in a Cup Winners' Cup semi-final and two FA Cup finals only a few years previous, had played for... Manchester United, obviously Newcastle United as well. Playing at that level must have been quite a culture shock for Alan. So I asked Keith, 
what type of club was Swansea at the time? Uh, you look at images at, at the Vetchfield, which was Swansea's old ground before they moved into the current ground, which is the Liberty Stadium. And it's a classic old school British football grounds, terraces. Everything seems to be in black and white. The pitch is covered in mud. It must have been quite a difference for Alan turning up at the Vetch, having spent most of his football in life at Old Trafford. I mean, you have to remember that, you know, we were, as a club, Swansea City, you know, they very lucky to still be a club back then uh, under the guidance of a guy called Doug Sharp, who had uh, saved the club back in 1986. Everything on top of that was going to be a bonus. So, you know, within a year or two, signing the likes of, of Alan Davis and, and actually uh, coming more of a force in the lower leagues uh, than we had been when, you know, we obviously only five years before the Swans were in the, what is now the Premier League, which is the, was the first division then, absolutely tore clubs apart at times. Um, I remember uh, Manchester United and Arsenal all copping a big one at the Vetch and also Manchester City. So we had all that glory of what what was would be called the Malcolm Strull era, era which was the, the guy that brought John Toshak into, into Swansea. And then that magnificent five or five years or so of success followed. But then, of course, after relegation from the uh, from the first division, the old first division, things changed dramatically. Funds and finance obviously weren't, you know, were a problem. And maybe like all clubs, even today, we was, you know, Swansea City were going to suffer from the financial obligation that they had on contract as a result of being relegated. Found it uh, almost impossible to to continue as a business. So coming out of the nineteen eighty six issue and Doug Sharp and, and all that type of thing, then, to, as I said, to get somebody like uh, Alan Davis was fantastic. It was incredible. And then having Terry Orrath at the at the helm for a period of time and then beginning to, again, like Swansea have always done, bring forward players out of the, the reserves and the youth setup was was what we'd always expect, expected from Swansea. And then to see that happening again, and uh, yeah, we were, uh, we were, we were tru- truly excited. And uh, <laughs> I remember going down on the train to the um, the game against Torquay, I think there was well there were thousands of Swansea fans that went to that game, uh, the game that Alan scored and Swansea won on aggregate. You know, well I think we had, I'm not sure how many tickets we had. <laughs> I didn't have one. We got in, but I didn't have a ticket. I think I, I don't know. Some would say it was about 300 tickets. I couldn't. What I do know is there were thousands in that ground, and they weren't Torquay United supporters. My memories of Alan were, they're, they're, it's always raining and it's always muddy on the pitch and it's always inclement weather and he's got the ball and he had fairly long hair. Just running with the ball, attacking down the right-hand side or the left, but predominantly through the right-hand side and creating chances and and. And he was an exciting player. Not not ever did we think that it would all end a, a, as it did for Alan. But yeah, he was a, a special player for the Swans. And I do remember the Swans got into the, uh, I think it was the first ever playoff final. And uh, we we played Torquay United in a two-leg tie. So back then it wasn't, it wasn't played at Wembley. Uh, so you played two legs and Swansea City played uh, Torquay. I think we won 3-2 in the first leg, but it was the second leg that uh, I remember because that ended 3-3 Alan scored and um, it was a it was a huge day he he was on fire that day very very memorable time and you just thought this guy should be playing somewhere else for somebody else he was that good but uh, yeah that that goal he scored that day at Plainmore yeah that is a a distinct memory for me he also seemed um, he didn't seem confrontational all he seemed to wanted to do was create get the ball run with the ball and create chances for his team. He wasn't one of those dirty players or confrontational players on the pitch, uh, even though at that time in the 80s, you know, the the pitches weren't clever, uh, especially down in the fourth and the third division. But he just wanted to play. Can't remember a time when he got really in people's faces. He may well have, but I, I don't remember it. I just remember knowing that if he got the ball to Alan Davis, then things would happen. And they did. And that's why he played so many games for the Swans. 
So that match that, that Keith's talking about there, which was one of the 1988 playoff matches, um, the Swansea played against Torquay, which finished 3-3. Alan Davis actually scores the third goal for Swansea City that day, which sees them them through in that tie over two legs. You can find some unbelievable uh, f- footage from that game on YouTube. If you type in Torquay United versus Swansea City May 1988 playoff final second leg, it looks like it's just been filmed by somebody. Um, there's no commentary. There's the, you know there's none of the graphics or anything that you'd see sort of today. Um, even in the in the fourth division, it's literally just like found footage. It's incredible. And the thing that you'll probably notice the most is a how muddy the pitch is, and b how tightly packed in the crowd is. And if you skip to um, just 40 minutes in. You'll see Alan Davis's goal, and, and I'm going to play it a, a little bit of a clip from it here, and you can kind of get a little bit of a feel for what's going on in the atmosphere and and everything. And uh, you know, so there's there's a free kick, and it's 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 struck into the wall. It, it comes through, bobbles in the box, and Davis fires it under the keeper into the bottom corner, and then the camera turns round, and it goes through all this mud and wet into the Swansea end, where there is just absolute bedlam in the Swansea end behind it behind the fence it looks absolutely superb in there and then you hear the the tannoy and the, the goal scorer which is Alan Davis and then you come back into the middle of the pitch and there is a player that is wandering towards the halfway line who is caked in mud from top to bottom it is absolutely extraordinary so go and give that a watch and interestingly enough playing in that match he started on the bench and, and came on partway through was a certain 16 year old Lee Sharp who would only turn 17 at the conclusion of that season and then would sign for Manchester United in um, the summer of, of 1988, signing for United for £200,000. So uh, quite a nice, interesting crossover there between Alan and, and Lee Sharp, another uh, Manchester United's wingers. Alan moved briefly to, to Bradford City in, in the 1989-1990 season before returning to South Wales the following season, 1990-1991. Uh, over the two spells, he made 127 appearances for Swansea City and, by all accounts, was an extremely well-loved and popular player. He was very popular at Swansea, wasn't he? Yeah, apparently so. And, and um, popular with the the fans, popular with um, Terry Yorath, who, who took him there and then took him to Bradford and then, I think, signed him again for, for Swansea. Um, and I think, above all, um, popular with his teammates. Um, he was, uh, yeah, I spoke to a lad, Steve Thornber, who, who was there at the time, and and um, he was saying that, you know, he was, he was, you know, there was a really tight-knit group, and it included people like Chris Coleman um, at the very early stage of his career, Alan, Andy Belleville as well, and there were, you know, all these lads, and they were very close, and their wives were close, and they, they all used to go out together. Um, so, yeah, very, very popular uh, for, for what he did on the pitch and for the person he was in the dressing room. And any player that, that has the ability that Alan Davis had in a white shirt, any player like that will always be remembered by those supporters who were alive and could bear witness to his talents at the time. You know, he, he, I think he played in a region of around about 130 games he didn't score a lot of goals he did score goals but he didn't score a lot of goals he was more in the creative mold of uh, supplying assists and 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 generally annoying defenders with his with his skills as i say just picture a guy not huge not big i think he was a man about five foot eight uh, slim build longish hair driving rain mud skipping past people and causing absolute mayhem <laughs> and my word he did on many many occasions so after Alan returned to Swansea in the 1990-1991 season, he would go on to play a further 43 games for the club over the next season and a half. And his career and his life was cut short, tragically, on the, the 4th of February 1992, when Alan sadly died from suicide. I suppose the next part of the story, he was uh, tragically at the age of, of 30. And in February of 92, he, he took his own life. Did when I was the, the kind of reason I was doing around it was that it came as quite a big shock to sort of the footballing world and to to, to people who who had played with him and, and and fans and what have you. And he obviously he was still playing for Swansea at that time as well. Was it as much of a shock to his family and to the people who sort of knew him on a personal level? 
yeah, I mean, I think it was, I think it was a, a far bigger shock to 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 them than than to anyone. I mean, it, it would be. Um, I mean, his wife, his widow, Deborah, said to me, you know, she saw him as a positive person. There'd never been any sign whatsoever that he'd been ill or depressed or anything like that. And she she said that you know, the Sunday they they'd gone out as a family. The Monday, everything fine. The Tuesday morning, he was sort of sat quietly watching TV and she said to him, are you okay? You're quiet. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And then he went off and, and dropped his daughter at, at school. And, and um, the next thing she knew, she was getting a, a knock on the door from, um, from the police that evening. Um, and yeah, she said it was just the worst, most traumatic thing imaginable that you know your your husband who um who you know you, you dote on you expect you, you've had a child together you're expecting a second child together um that he he had obviously gone off and and, and taken his life and and he i think the alarm bells had been raised by the club because they, they, he and a lot of his teammates a group of them used to gather for um, breakfast at a cafe every morning before training and then do a bit of a lift chair. And this morning in particular, um, Alan didn't show. Um, and they kind of shrugged and left left without him. And, and I think at lunchtime, I think the club secretary rang up and said, oh, rang Deborah and said, oh, is Alan okay? He wasn't at training today. And she thought, well, that's, that's a bit odd. And then, then she rang, you know, spoke to one of one of his teammates and said, "Oh no, these like thinking had had the car broken down, had you know, had he had an accident, um, something like that." There was no thought whatsoever that he had um, well done what he did, and and it was it was clearly, you know, there was there was no sense of of them worrying because of. Alan's mood or Alan's demeanour or Alan's personality. I don't think that caused any concern whatsoever. I think I think they thought his car had broken down and, and were confused about where he was. It was such a was such a, a shock for a player as as skilled as Alan was, even though he left us when he was thirty. A player as skilled as he was to to leave us was was a tremendous shock and I think that shock went on for months and months until the game that Manchester United brought down a, a, a decent side for in fact I think it might have been a full team for the uh, memorial match uh, for Alan uh, later on in 1992 in the summer I do remember very clearly the the day that Alan died I always thought it was Sunday but it wasn't uh, it was uh, it was a Monday he dropped his uh, only child at the time off at Gower, which is uh, a beautiful, picturesque area of Swansea, and um, and took his life uh, in his uh, motor vehicle. That was uh, that was some shock, and yeah, of course, everybody can talk about it now, but back then there were very little outlets for players, I would imagine, or or even in any environment for somebody, especially male, to actually say, "Listen, I'm in trouble." I've got a problem uh, and I need help because it's quite, you know, it's well documented that, that nobody knew of Alan's problems. Nobody knew the way he was feeling. But with his wife, who I believe was pregnant at the time, Deborah, you know, for somebody to to do that and then just after he's dropped his, his only child off at school was, I mean, he must have been in the worst place that any man could find himself in because... It's he must have been in a seriously dark place. Now I'm purely going on memory here. The week before Alan died, I was at uh, myself and a few mates had travelled up from Gloucester to to see the Swans play West Bromwich Albion at the Hawthorns. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a clever game for Swansea. I mean, in fact, the whole day wasn't very clever when you think about some of the things that always used to happen when Swansea travelled to certain clubs, and that's the supporters. I mean, that that was in itself a, a, 
a memory. But I remember that we didn't play well. Swansea were 2-0 down to West Bromwich Albion, probably expected. And um, with 10, 9 or 10 minutes to go, Alan was substituted. Um, and obviously his that was his final game. And on came um, Steve Thornber, if my memory serves me right. Correct me if I'm wrong. And scored a hat-trick of <laughs> in eight minutes, I think. Much to the dismay of the local supporters. I think there was only about 11,000 there that day. But West Bromwich Albion weren't the best supported club at the time. We always used to have a decent, a very decent away following. Yeah, much celebration in the stand. I think they put us in the stand that day. Uh, alongside which made it even easier for people to get at each other but yeah I do remember that Steve Thornber came on for Allen he hadn't played well uh, but he scored the hat trick that secured a 3-2 win for Swansea City unbelievable did that have a I, I wouldn't say that had a it was anything to do with his death but he left the pitch that day and you could see he wasn't happy uh, his head was down he hadn't played well and then I suppose for substituted and the player that comes on then scores a hat trick is um, it's not going to do your confidence that much uh, it's not going to give it much of a boost is it as we so often try to highlight in these episodes is just how different attitudes were to, to suicide and to mental health back even in, in the 90s, which which feels so close, even though 1992 was almost 30 years ago now. So I asked uh, Ollie and Keith what the reaction to Alan's death was. Obviously, when the, uh, the news broke that Alan had died, I mean, it was, I suppose it was big news. I do remember it being on the national news as well. Swansea City always featured on the national news when something went wrong as opposed to when something went right. <laughs> and when I say national, I mean UK national news, you know, the uh, nighttime news. Of course, it was a shock. And, you know, what can you say? You've lost a player that was well respected, that clearly uh, had an extreme talent at the age of 30, probably had a good few years left at, uh, at the level that the Swans were at at that time. But unfortunately, um, that wasn't the case, and yeah, extreme shock. Yeah, the <laughs> and mental health. We've we've touched on it. The the fact that back then, in well, what is it now? It's nearly thirty years ago. It was you know no, I don't recall anybody talking about mental health. I I do recall people referring to people with certain illnesses in an in, in a derogatory way, which. Obviously, even that's not going to encourage anybody to talk about where they're at or what they want uh, what they want you to know about them. I think, I think now even there's there's an issue, but players are coming out and talking more openly about how their careers ended and how what they went through when the thrill of that those moments playing professional football were taken away from them due to their age or retirement. And we've seen it with a lot of players in recent years, where you know they've they've come out openly now and are able to talk about how they feel and, and the effect on them, and also their support for them through the PFA, which is always uh, going to be useful, especially with the uh, finance the PFA has got to assist these players that are, are, are suffering. But I think in general, across the board, doesn't matter whether you're a sports person or not, that we're in a stronger position now as people to be able to say, yeah, there's something wrong with me. For me personally, I'm open about the fact that seven years ago I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which was always going to raise a smile with people's faces, um, belittled and ridiculed. But that was after more than 30 years of, uh, of service in my chosen occupation. And um, when you're di diagnosed with a serious and complex issue, in relation to your PTSD, things become extremely difficult. And I can really, really understand where Alan was on that morning when he decided to go and take his own life or when he went to a place to reflect and then decided to take his own life. What, Whatever happened, whatever he was going through, I understand that 100% perfectly. I've no doubt if, if my own personal experiences of... Uh, of not really being able to function properly and regularly. Uh, if that was back in 1992, I've absolutely no doubt whatsoever that um, it could have been a different ending for me as well as it could have been for a lot of people. Well, as, as I said, I, I remember seeing it on CFAX, um, which was, it was just a headline on there, you know, saying, I mean, I can't, I can't remember how they phrased it, but Alan Davis said, had died. I was just absolutely shocked 
Um, but then I don't ever remember, I don't ever remember reading anything more about it in a, in a newspaper. I don't remember there being much more discussion of it at all. And if you look at, I mean, when, when I was going to write about it, which was, I think, 2016, so, you know, years and years later, um, I, I looked not, I mean, obviously, you wouldn't expect to find much on the internet because a lot of the websites, um, you know, don't really cover content from pre, you know, archive content from pre-2000 or so. But even when I was looking back through the sort of, you know, the computer, you know, the newspaper archives system that we'd got, which had newspaper coverage from the 90s and from the time, there was very little beyond the sort of factual reporting of it. And you wonder whether, I, don't, I mean, for, football coverage in those days was nothing like it is now. Um, but it was it was kind of, I don't know, it was like there were short pieces about it in the next day's paper. There were, you know, there was the old teammate talking about it a few days later. And then it was like forgotten, like sort of barely, barely touched for years. And, and then if you, the only times he would come up would be if there was a reference to like, you know, if it was before an FA Cup final and there was somebody unexpected about to play, you know, there'd be like five shock FA Cup heroes and and, and it, it would list Alan Davis among those. And and then if it was, you know, a footballer would, would take the life or, you know, like as Gary Speed did and, and you'd get like this sort of glib list of, of five football suicides, which you think, and, and that's the only time, you know, you, there would just be like a couple of paragraphs here and there. And that's really why I wanted to tell a story because I, I thought, I mean, one of my colleagues who's, you know, just a little bit younger than me said, my God, I, I, I didn't know, I, I feel embarrassed, I didn't know that. In August of 1992, Manchester United sent a team to Swansea City for a memorial match in memory of Alan Davis, which in some ways probably highlights just how popular an individual he was, both on and off the pitch. You've mentioned the memorial match for Alan, and do you know, I'm pretty certain... I'm pretty certain I was there. And I'm pretty certain the Swans won 1-0. I could be wrong. Swansea City versus Manchester United. And I, again, again, the passage of time could be the problem. But I think Dion Dublin might have broken his leg in that game. I'm not sure. But yeah, there was a memorial match for Allen. And as as the programme notes said at the time, and I, I dug out the programme. So the fact I've got it, I don't know, that must tell me that I may have been there. <laughs> but it does say that uh, it's quite quite poignant. It says uh, in the in the programme notes that, that the game, Swansea City versus Man United, August 1992, was never going to reach or hit any headlines. Uh, it was merely an opportunity for people to pay their respects, for the family to, to be involved in in paying respects and see that people were still remembering Alan as they do today. I mean, on our our website, Swansea Independent now, we are trying to um, carefully uh, integrate some mental health awareness into into the website. It's how we're going to do that and has been worked on for the the last uh, couple of months. And uh, I think it's a valid area for people to, to, if it's just to get information, contacts, agencies, support, even if it's just that, then I think it's important. Because uh, as football fans, we're up and down every week. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, one minute you're joyous and resplendent, the fact you've won a game, and then the next, in a game you should have won, you're down in the dumps. And I think that change of emotion is often leads to problems on and or issues for, for an individual, especially if the rest of their life isn't as clever and and clearer with, with the clarity that they would like. But yeah, we're going to do something on Swansea Independent for that uh, in due course. And thank you for allowing me to talk about Alan Davis, who was, I would say, probably in my top 20 players of all time at Swansea City. I'd like to thank Ollie Kay and Keith Haynes for their time and assisting me with this episode. It, it couldn't have happened without them. And I'd also like to thank you for for listening if you want to find more out about man marking the podcast you can find us on twitter at marking underscore man and don't forget to use the hashtag 
where's the talking lads we do have another four or five of these type of episodes where we we take a look back at an example of mental ill health from football from yesteryear we've we've touched on the likes of uh, Gaincha, Robin Friday, Dave Clements. Um, we recently did an episode about George Best as well. So if you did enjoy today's episode, then check back in and you can listen to some of those as well. Our latest interview on the podcast was with former Manchester United and Rotherham defender Rodri Jones. And this will be the, the last of the Flat Caps episodes for this year. We'll be back in January with more, but we do have some more interview episodes of Man Marking, the next one being with Robbie Simpson, and that's out on Monday. I'm now going to leave you with with Ollie Kay to to see us out the episodes and Ollie's talks about Jeremy Whiston, the 17 year old former Manchester City youth player who sadly took his own life back in October. And I think it really highlights the important message that whilst football and whilst the world has come a long way since 1992 in terms of the way that it approaches and the way that it talks about mental health and particularly suicide. I think we've still got a lot of work to do. There's still a long way to go. So I'd implore you to, to listen right to the end of what Ali's got to say and, and hopefully you'll take something from, from his words. Thank you for listening and we'll hopefully see you next time. It was, yeah, it, it, one of those things that, I mean, if you compare to when Gary Speed died, uh, I mean, obviously Gary Speed was very different profile and, and very, you know, he was, he was you know, a guy who played hundreds and hundreds of games in the Premier League for big clubs and played for Wales brilliantly and, and managed Wales. And, and um, he, you know, th- th- there was a, a real outpouring at that time. But again, in that case, I, I would say that when Gary Speed died, after the initial sort of outpouring in the, in the media, it went quiet. And, and people sort of talk about, oh, well, we're going to learn lessons. We're going to... You know, society as, as a football industry we need to talk about this more but it feels like i'm sure if you looked at, on, on some kind of graph of, of, of the media coverage of these stories it's when something happens when somebody says that they've suffered with depression or uh, they're still living with depression or when they said or if somebody tragically takes their life um you see it, it's a big spike of the coverage and then it goes quiet again and, and so there isn't really this ongoing kind of public conversation about it and that's why I think I mean you're, you're when you mentioned that you were doing this series I thought it was so good and so important and, and um, because you know I think these stories need to be told all the time I think people's experiences need to be shared all the time and I mentioned Jeremy Whiston the, the boy from Manchester City and I, I, I wrote about him earlier this week for The Athletic and um, speaking to a few people who, who knew him and trying to get to the bottom of that story, which at the moment is difficult, really difficult, um, because there are various unknowns about it. And I've been surprised, to be honest, that after the, you know, it was, it was all over social media on Sunday and lots of messages and, and a real outpouring, I've been surprised that there hasn't really been more coverage of that this week and I hope I hope that there is if as long as it's done in a sensitive way and around his family and friends and so on but I think the idea of somebody being a guy who is released by a Premier League club academy and then taking his life less than 18 months later is shocking and, and, and terrible and I'm not saying at all that I blame the football industry of that, but when I, I, a few people res- responded to, to me on Twitter by saying, "Well, you know, you can't say it's because of Man City. You can't say it's because of the football industry. You know, it, it, he left last year. You know, it was clearly something else." And I thought, "Well, look, I don't want to get, I don't want to speculate or debate that." And that's not what the article was about. It was more about the idea that he'd gone from an an industry, you know, he'd gone from being in an, an academy to feeling clearly desperate or hope, you know, without hope 18 months later. And you think, well, that might, I mean, I, I don't even want to speculate whether it was the, the being rejected by 
um, an academy was was not percent to do with that, hundred percent to do with that. You know, wherever on the scale, um, it might, you know, uh, you know the, the importance or impact of that incident in his life. I think the issue is that there's a, a player who was involved in this multi-million, multi-billion pound industry where players have everything done for them. Um, and then he wasn't in that industry and, and very, very quickly, he felt like he had nowhere to go. And although Manchester City as a club had, had gone through their sort of aftercare uh, arrangements process with him and they'd tried to make it as, as sort of soft a landing as possible and tried to help him find a club and had been in touch with him to, to, to check everything was going okay. Clearly the support network that he had in his life was not quite good enough to, to stop this happening. Um, and you'd think, well, maybe schools, I, I, I thought his, his, his um, family in, the, in their statement were incredibly um, dignified and, and compassionate in what they said. And it was, it was a, a very strong, dignified statement and they weren't pointing a lot of people rushing to say the, the football industry must do more. These clubs must do more. And they said, well, they, they didn't go down that road. They didn't point fingers. They didn't, they said they were very grateful for his academy experience and the opportunity that Manchester City had given him. And then they said, you know, maybe, maybe football clubs and schools and, and everybody needs to, you know, commit more to educating people about mental health and, and maybe the parents too. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's the um, the the lesson in it, because clearly the situation is now so much better in terms of understanding mental health than it was when Alan Davis died. But clearly, there's there's a long way to go in terms of supporting people, not only when they're within the game, but I think particularly, especially when they come out of it, because I think that's where a lot of the problems take place. Slung in again by Augustin, and it'll reach Whiteside, and Davis surely, 1-1.